podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey everybody and welcome to our Serie A Chronicles uh, Tifosi Patreon Q&A special. Uh, it's myself, Nikki Bandini and Patrick Kendrick here to answer some of your questions that you have been sharing with us on the Patreon app. Please do keep these coming, by the way. I know um, we've had a little bit of a of a break since we last did a Q&A special. Um, we're going to try to make these a regular part of the rotation again, because it's nice to have that uh, back and forth with you guys, because it helps us to answer questions that you would like answered. So if you're listening to this, whether you're new or, or have been around for a while, please do keep sending us your questions. We won't necessarily get to them every week, but we're going to try and make it a fixture to come back and do these Q&A episodes. Um, at regular intervals. Um, Patrick, I'm going to dive straight into this one. Um, we've got two questions actually about Tiago Motta. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to read them both out and and let's discuss them both together. Let's do it. Um, the first one is um, from Manu Alcala, who asks, what has Tiago Motta changed between his disastrous spell at Genoa compared to his current success at Bologna? We were talking about Bologna on the main show this week uh, they are of course fourth in the Serie A table right now having won five games in a row um, there's a follow-up question as well from Jill who asks uh, can I add on to this question um, to ask for the group's opinion on where Motta should go after Bologna in your opinion should he stay in Serie A for his next step or move to another um, league obviously dependent on which clubs have an opening, but if the following are open to him, for example, Milan, Liverpool, Barcelona, PSG. So let's answer the first bit Let first. me just scribble down those teams. Milan, Liverpool, <laughs> PSG and Barcelona. Barcelona. Wow. I mean, if he um, had the pick of even of one of those clubs, <laughs> I would suggest he would go there, to be honest. But Yeah, uh, some big names. Let's, let's yeah. do the first bit first and talk about how he's got to the point where he's in that conversation sure. and then we'll, I mean, we'll come to the, that. The, there's a lot to get to first here. I mean, looking back at the numbers from his from his spell in charge of Genoa, he was only in charge for, for 10 matches and he came in mid-season. And mm. that was a, that's a Genoa side that was consistently battling relegation um, and eventually they, they would succumb to relegation, lest we forget they're only back in Serie A this season, having been promoted as runners-up last season. And now there seems to be a bit of stability in terms of the sporting director and the head coach, Gilardino, is doing very well. But th this was a Genoa side that was consistently chopping and changing coaches. And I don't think Thiago Motta is necessarily the man for a crisis. We spoke about... Um, Put it this way, I don't think that's his speciality as coming in and being a firefighter and, uh, and um, you know, really making big decisions and big changes to, to get a quick fix, as, as we've seen in the way of perhaps um, Davide Nicola has done recently with, with Empoli. I think he's more of a project builder. I think he's someone who benefits from having time to work with the players on the training ground, full pre-season. I mean, you know, coming in mid-season is never easy, especially when you're in a relegation battle. And if you don't get results very quickly, then suddenly, uh, you know, it, it's you're under pressure. And, and then how do you strike the right balance between trying to introduce your notions of play, your footballing principles, and also just picking the strongest team and, and the best possible um, system to, to get a result? So I think there's something in that. Having said that, when he came into Bologna, he, uh, he came in mid-season because uh, Sinisha Mihailovic was, was dismissed. And, and if we actually go back in time, that was, it was quite a controversial pick 
Thiago mm, Motta, on the sense that Roberto De Zerbi came out and said, I would never take that job because I don't think it's fair. Mihailovic is in, he's unwell, and I don't think anyone should be taking that job, you know, which I thought was a little bit unfair from De Zerbi at the time. Um, Thiago Motta has since shown that it was a very good decision from a professional footballing perspective, both from him and from the club himself. But I think his stock has continually risen. He kept Spezia in the division as well, which... Uh, Vincenzo Italiano had managed. So I think part of this is simply a young coach, young in terms of experience, just getting to grips with things, trying things out, trial and error, making mistakes, learning from those mistakes, you know, learning how to conduct yourself with a certain president, with a certain ownership group, with a group of players who, you know, who can I trust? Who can't I trust? Who, what system do I want to play? How do I want to play? And of course you can produce much more expansive style of football when you have better players to pick from. And I think he has that now. So I don't think it's black and white. I don't think it's suddenly he was a disaster at Genoa and all of a sudden he's a, a phenomenon at Bologna. I think this is a gradual process and along the, along the way there have been certain steps and stages of development. Yeah. I, I think he's, he's, um, Absolutely. Everything you've just said is is spot on about opportunities and, and about what you're being asked to do in a different setting and, and, and what you've got the opportunity to do. There's there's clubs that you come into mid-season where you're, you're firefighting and there's clubs where you come into and yes, very difficult circumstances with Sinisa Mihailovic's um, illness and, and, and subsequent passing away and, and what you are up against in that, um, that circumstances is just different and it was a controversial job to take for all the reasons you just said and and people were some people were really um unhappy that there was a change of manager made but i think in terms of the actual football side of things there was immediately a certain amount from the ownership of freedom given to him and and patience shown to him to to do what he wanted and i think that we actually had an interesting conversation on the main podcast this week about Daniele De Rossi and his strengths and weaknesses. And I think that with Motta, it's a very different story. What stands out with Motta right away, when you go back to when he's working with the Paris Saint-Germain youth team, he has very clear ideas of what he wants mm. from football. He has very clear tactical visions of, of how he wants football to be played. And this was something he got ridiculed for because there was this quote given in an interview where he said that his ideal formation was a 272 and people of course first of all add up 272 and realize that includes <laughs> the goalkeeper second of all think you can't have seven midfielders and, and two defenders and actually what that speaks to is when you listen properly to what he said rather than just take that 272 and and run with it is actually a vision of football that ties together with what lots of top managers are doing these days, which is incredibly fluid hybrid football teams. That's what Simone Inzaghi has made it into, is a, is a team where you can see Stefan de Vrij rampaging forward on the attack as part of a Champions League uh, knockout game because the team adapts and, and moulds itself around one player going and players drop and adjust accordingly. And, and that's what he's set out to do at Bologna and he's been given the time to do at Bologna. I'm not saying that playing at the level of or in exactly the same way as an Inter or a Barcelona or, or um, a Manchester City. But that's the idea. The idea is we, we can flow and be fluid and, and everyone's working for each other. And and I think that there are big picture parts of that. Um, there's something in my mind which is completely um, intangible, which is Bologna is this famously left-wing city in Italy so this socialist idea of football fits very well with the environment um, but uh, there's also more tangible things that you can point to some of which are 
almost circumstantial in some degree, which is for two years, Marko Arnautovic was this um, pillar at the front of the team that everything was built around. By the end of his first season at Bologna, uh, first half season, uh, you already had a tension building between Motta and Arnautovic because Motta was saying, you're not a fixed start, you're not getting to play every game. And then conveniently, Inter showed up with an offer for Arnautovic, which was big enough that the club could say, we have to accept this for a 34-year-old. And then Thiago Motta can get a striker, Joshua Zerkse, who fits his model of football much better. The way he wants to play football, he wants that um, really mobile front um, front man who's going to drop into midfield, who's going to vacate his face, who's going to... So there's, there's the big picture and there's the little picture. Um, but I think that all of the circumstances have fell together very well for Motta at, um, at, at um, Bologna. And, and it's just he's been given the time and the freedom to 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 play football where he wants and he's also got the players who want to do it for him i yeah. think um i think that lewis ferguson's a great example of someone um who we we still don't know what lewis ferguson's ceiling is but he actually has barely played for the scotland national team now scotland without wanting to upset any scottish listeners it's not a nation Overwhelming it's quite a good generation abundant. at the moment, I think, isn't it? That's to be true. fair, yeah, that is true. But it's not a generation that you think can just discard someone who's doing as well as Lewis Ferguson has, and they're not discarding him. But I think it mm. it, it says something that he hasn't had loads and loads of opportunities. Because is he a, a brilliant footballer, or is he a footballer who's just extremely right for Thiago Motta and is um, being incredibly selfless when he needs to be, is working for the team in the ways he needs to. I think it can be both. I'm not trying to do down Lewis Ferguson either, but I, I, I think that in terms of the character of the players he's got in that Bologna squad, he's got a lot of those sorts of players who are at the point in their careers where they have a point to prove and are willing to do exactly what their manager asks in the service of a team that's succeeding. And the numbers are, are eye-catching as well for Ferguson scoring goals from midfield. But a lot of that is what you said about Zierksy coming short and, mm-hmm. and therefore vacating space for, for midfield runners to, to break into. Just one final thought on Thiago Motta. Again, coming back to the, the initial part of the question about Genoa. I've actually pulled up the coaches that Genoa had between uh, Gasparini leaving the club in 2016. So they then had between 2016 and Ivan Juric uh, had, had a full season. Juric, Mandorlini, Juric, Ballardini, Juric, Prandelli, Andrea Zoli, then Tiago Motta, then Davide Nicola, Rolando Maran, Ballardini, Shevchenko, Conco on an interim basis, which is laughable because most of those are essentially interim basis, given that they, they were all sacked yeah. mid-season, and Alexander Blessing. So, I mean, you've got more than, you've got double figures of coaches there in a window between 2017 and 2022. So they're, they're averaging basically less than half a season. And I, I would, you know, challenge any coach to be able to thrive and perform in those circumstances. He got a full season at Spezia, kept them up, and that's what attracted Bologna to, to him in the first place. So I think that's the first bit. Then we had these four massive clubs, didn't we? Which, yeah. Uh, Milan, Liverpool, PSG and, uh, and Barcelona. So, Do Nikki, you know, if, if all of those were vacant, <laughs> and obviously two of them are definitely going to be in, in Barcelona mm-hmm. and Liverpool, should we start with those two? Well, I, I actually, before we even start, want to say if, we, if we're talking these clubs, then why not throw one more into the, the, the mix, which is another big club that's going to have a vacancy, which is Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich is, is, is not going to be managed by Thomas Tuchel next season. We don't know who's going in there now. Am I saying Thiago Motta goes to Bayern Munich? I, I think probably not, but I, I don't um, I don't think he's going to Liverpool either. So, so why not open it up? Um, I... Um, uh, 
I think we talked about again on the main show uh, this quote from Aurelio De Laurentiis um, in an interview he gave not uh, long ago where he said that he had a six hour interview with uh, um, Chago Motta about the Napoli job in the summer, but Motta gave him an indication that he was more interested in opportunities abroad. Now, I think if Chago Motta came and gave you a six hour interview, he at least wanted to hear what you had to say. And in my head, listening to that, if it's even a true account, but if it is a true account of what happened, the question in my head is, is that like one of those polite ways you decline someone? The it's not you, it's me. Um, so to give Napoli is, oh, I'd rather coach abroad. Um, but actually, maybe it's just you don't want to coach Napoli. So would you Is that door now more- closed? Would he take the Napoli job a, a year on? In the sense that you go there with very low expectations. They might not be in the Champions League. Do you then suddenly think it worked well for me one game a week at Bologna with this Napoli squad? Suddenly, can I reestablish mm-hmm. them in the Champions League? Can I maybe go for... Or do you think that they've drawn a line under that now? You... you you know, you can't turn down De Laurentiis and expect him to come calling again. I think De Laurentiis would come calling again. I I think um, it would depend what's on the table. Uh, right now, Bologna look more likely to have Champions League football next season. So would you walk away from that to go to Napoli? Coaches have made that sort of move before. Pay rise. But, yeah, but I don't know if, if he would. Um, and uh, and would you give up the project that you've already been working on for, for a less certain one, especially with expectations that, for instance, Victor Osman's going, what promises are you being made in terms of squad reinforcement? Um, I I don't think that would be a clear-cut step up for him at this point. Again, we can revisit at the end of the season and see where the standings are and, and who's going to what European competitions. Um, I think the Milan job would, would certainly be a step up. I think that's a really potentially interesting spot for him in terms of that is a, a club that's invested in young players that's trying to build a new project that perhaps after purely would feel still like a place that you could walk into and and create something and and put your identity on it with with players who again have that hunger and and willingness to to learn i think they've they've done a good job of assembling that sort of group at milan and but this is someone who won the treble with Inter going to Milan as head coach. Well, there is that. Yes, there is that uh, club connection. And, and Motta has sort of shown those connections matter to him, hasn't he, at times. So possible, but not obvious. I, I just can't see Liverpool coming to him. I, I don't think he's yet established his profile at a, at a high enough level for that. Um, and I think that probably applies to Barcelona and Bayern Munich as well. So I, I maybe I'm wrong. My feeling is that his stock his opportunities are higher within Italy than outside Italy for now I think outside of Italy the obvious spot would be Paris Saint-Germain because of all the the ties he has there but I don't think I expect that job to be there this summer at the moment but maybe I'm wrong which is ironic because it feels Mm -hmm. you know it's a strange one it feels like it was a yearly vacancy and unless they won the Champions League and the closest they ever got was the was the final, wasn't it, in that in that lockdown mm. season? I think with Thiago Motta, what he has shown is, and we're saying this on the on the main pod, um, with Italian coaches typically, they're reluctant to go abroad, save for a few more recent examples. Obviously, we've seen the likes of Sarri, albeit it didn't really work out at Chelsea, Conte, Ancelotti. There's been there's been a few. Um, Di Matteo, albeit he played in in England, so that's not necessarily you know someone without really a profile as as a coach in in Italy. So, but Thiago Motta is, is an atypical Italian in that he's a naturalised Brazilian. Uh, he played abroad, you know, he was in the Barcelona Academy. He played that long spell with, with PSG at the back end of his career. So I think he does have that international profile. He's clearly multilingual. He's well thought of around the European game. So I, I can see much more 
a much greater likelihood for him to go abroad in the short term than, say, someone like Simone Inzaghi, who, who we've mentioned before, who I think is attracting a lot of interest from elsewhere, mm -hmm. but is still very monolingual and is uh, sort of unapologetically so. Um, so perhaps, you know, he could, he could go to England and take an interpreter with him. That's just, just well, putting it I out mean, there. So uh. <laughs> We've also, we've talked about Liverpool who are top of the Premier League right now. The question I think that's perhaps more open in England is would there be a club that's like half a step below that, that, that could be interesting to him? Um, and, and what about if Zerbi goes be? to Liverpool and Thiago Motta takes over at Brighton? Well, that's, that's the sort of profile of job I'm, I'm asking myself about is, is would a Brighton type job appeal to him or not? Or would he think in his head, I can hold out and the PSG job's going to be there for me at some point, which is a higher profile job, whether or not it's a better job. That's um, a question that's more subjective, I think. Um, I think if you're looking for one obvious, bigger potential job uh, where maybe his profile could fit, if Manchester United decided that the Ten Hag thing wasn't Oof. working, then I think that's, in that slightly unique bracket of a huge club with huge potential that doesn't have the level of um, recent success that Liverpool have, where you feel like you really have to bring in someone who is in the very top. Liverpool have to hire a name that, that's, that's acceptable to people. I think that's the, the part. I see it the other way around. I, I see it as, yeah. as United have to go for the name because they, you know, mm -hmm. if they're getting rid of Ten Hag, who was this sort of slightly unknown quality, who was the project builder and it hasn't worked out. I feel like now with Ineos and all of the investment and Jim Ratcliffe and best in class and all this sort of stuff, I feel like they're going to have to go and make a real splash and say, okay, uh, Guardiola's at Man City, Klopp is now gone. We're going to get the Klopp equivalent in the modern era now to try and bring in at Manchester United, someone who's going to get results immediately, but is also going to build something. And I think it would be too much of a gamble on Thiago Motta, whereas I feel like Liverpool have, have got that within them to give their manager time and the fan base mm. is a lot more amenable to that. I'm not saying Thiago Motta would be that person, but yeah, I actually, I actually see it the other way. I'm just mm -hmm. conscious. Yeah. I know you're, yeah. you're steering this debate, but I'm just conscious this is becoming yes, a bit sorry. of a deep dive on Thiago it Motta. Has, so, it has. Uh, it has. I'm, 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 you're right. I'm supposed to be steering, steering this episode and I'd forgotten that slightly. <laughs> um, so uh, next uh, question, let's move on to, uh, thank you for those questions again, Manu and Jill. Uh, next topic that came up in a couple of questions um, was about Serie A um, reducing the number of teams that uh, compete in the top division. Uh, Sanat Talmaki wrote, other than the big three and Roma, no other clubs were in favour of going to 18 teams for Serie A. For the big teams with UCL commitments, Champions League commitments, it makes sense. But aside from that, does an 18 team Serie A have any benefits? I also read an article recently about the Italian League pushing for more autonomy from the FIGC, the Italian Football Federation, uh, similar to the Premier League in England, can we expect any major changes in the, in this direction? Um, Tom Downs also sent a very similar question, interested in knowing any thoughts on Serie A reducing to 18 teams, pros and cons and chances of it happening. Patrick? I'm going to address the, the elephant in the room first and foremost. Big caveat here. Obviously, um, I, I'm not impartial on this in the sense that uh, I'm freelance and I commentate on Serie A matches. I do three games every weekend. So moving from 20 teams to 18 teams economically would certainly hurt my pocket because suddenly you've got four fewer rounds. You go from a 38-game season to a 34-game season. So I'm a dozen matches down. So I've got that out of the way. Um, personally... I don't think it's a, it's a silver bullet. I don't think by eliminating two teams from the current Serie A, you do do anything to address what has become, 
well, this season we've discussed it, haven't we? A, th- a three-tier league, basically. It's It's been the, the big three, the strike teams from from the north, the Milan clubs and Juventus. Um, and then that next bracket down, which is the teams chasing Europe. And then it feels like from 12th or 13th onwards down to the bottom, it's all a bit of a free-for-all. And, we, you know, we're, we're getting progressively lower points tallies. Um I called actually I called a colleague up on him saying that 30 points is normally enough to stay up in Serie A. Traditionally, it was 40 points. It's not quite 30. I was looking through the uh, the numbers recently, but it's it's getting that way. And you can, which is a shame, really. And that's why I think teams like Inter, who whilst they are wonderful and one of the best teams we've seen in a generation, it's it it is indicative of the way the rest of the league is going that a team can be approaching possibly 100 points. So, do I think? There's too much football being played. Yes. Should it be the domestic leagues that have to accommodate to allow for these new competitions that are bringing in more matches? I don't necessarily think so. Uh, I was looking at it in preparation for the Lecce Inter game. There was a, it's a great newspaper article. Can't remember which newspaper it was, but because Inter are already qualified for next season's revamped 32 team Club World Cup, which will be played in America. Inter, if they were to go all the way in all of their competitions next season, so we're talking about Serie A, they will be in the EA Sports FC Super Cup if that sponsor retains its rights to it. That's a that's a two-team tournament we saw this year in, in Saudi Arabia with a final four. Uh, Coppa Italia plus Champions League plus Club World Cup. Inter could play 71 matches next season if they were to go the, the, the distance. So that is crazy, really, for, for what is it? Well, it would be longer than 10-month 10, 10 season, wouldn't it? But, I mean, you think about players like Nicolo Barella, well, almost all of Italy's uh, Inter's team who are all going to be involved in Euro 2024 pretty much. You know, you're going from suddenly you've got Euro 2024 this summer. Next summer, they're going to be involved in the Club World Cup. And the summer after that, you've got the World Cup, provided Italy can qualify for the third time in three tournaments, which I hasten to add. There's no guarantee. So I, I see where people are coming from. I mean, the players are tired. They're constantly, you know, making it known either through interviews with the media or press conference appearances or going via the trade union, FIFA Pro, which represents all of the players that they think they're playing too much football. Other people, you know, some of the old guard will come out and say, well, in our day, we never had substitutes, let alone five substitutes. So I think that there is a middle ground to be had, but I think everyone, I think if you want to bring down the overall number of matches, everyone needs to make a concession. You can't just simply say the domestic league has to suffer because, you know, that also hurts Serie A's earning potential and the TV rights. So therefore the club's ability to generate revenue in the first place, you know, it's all very well and good for Inter, Milan and Juventus voting for a reduced Serie A, knowing they're probably going to qualify for Europe. It doesn't help teams that are reliant on being in in the top division or if they go down, they get parachute payments, you know, and also then, then there are fewer matches. So you can't market the league as much. And you, it's, it's a really, I mean, you could have a four hour deep dive on this and still not really draw any conclusions. I, I'm just yeah. basically, I feel like I'm throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks <laughs> in terms of possible reasons for and against. I don't know if I even have an opinion on this or not. I know <gasps> at, at this moment in time, I want to keep a 38-game league because it's what I'm used to and I know where I am with it. This is the, the spaghetti on the wall thing. I don't know where it's come from, but there's like some people who believe that spaghetti on the wall tells you whether your spaghetti is cooked. Yeah, on the ceiling and... as well, I think, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I was having this conversation with an Italian <laughs> friend who, who lives over here about how uh, some English people had been asking them if that was how they should check their spaghetti. And um, he was 
pulling a facial expression that indicated how I feel about it, which is you could you could just bite your spaghetti and see if it tastes yeah. ready. And start by um, salting the water, please, as well. Please yes. salt the water properly. Um, I um, I think Patrick's covered the main points on that really well. I don't know if there's much more to add. I, I think if you want to say, does it have any benefits? Um, yes, it it has some benefits mm. you could argue for, for sure. The, 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 the games played clearly affects the top teams the most. But for instance, this season, you could look and say, well, the Africa Cup of Nations was disruptive to a lot of teams. And if you've got fewer teams, you could try to arrange your schedule to accommodate tournaments like that and give everyone fewer games that, that overlap with, um, with international tournaments that happen during your season. Um, you uh, also, on the financial side of things, overall the biggest winners are the biggest clubs but i think that if you have 18 teams in uh, the division then the pie gets split 18 ways instead of 20 and the teams that don't get relegated probably make a little bit more money as well so there there are some um some benefits that could apply to everyone i i do think the biggest the biggest issue is the one again that patrick highlighted which is number of games being played by some footballers has got out of control and as much as I know lots of people will want to roll their eyes and say, rich footballers don't deserve my sympathy. It's not about sympathy. It's about what kind of product you want top football to be. And if players are physically exhausted, they're going to be injured more. You're going to see less of them anyway. So it's not it's not the win that I think some people imagine it is. Um, so I think that's pretty well covered. Um, Stephen Cole had a question that I thought was a fun one to get to. Mm. Um, I don't particularly support any team, but love Italian football and love going to visit games. What are your favourite grounds that you have been to or would like to go to that outside of the top seven, uh, the top teams of the Seven Sisters? I will jump in right away and say, again, a club we have talked about on the main show this week. Bologna is always my answer <laughs> place to go. I am completely open about my bias here. My family is from Emiromagna. Um, not from Bologna, but from uh, a small town that's about an hour, a little bit less than an hour by train from there. Um, and uh, I, I just think if you're going to go to a part of Italy to enjoy your time, Bologna is a really uh, beautiful, incredibly walkable city that's fun to be in, where you're going to eat the best pasta in Italy, in my completely biased opinion. Uh, and it's not uh, like Christmas. <laughs> um, I, I um I uh and uh and the and the stadium's great. Um uh, uh, it's it's a one of those ones that um you're not as far away from the pitch as you are at some other Italian stadiums. Uh it's got the tower, which is um obviously a a a, a fun landmark to see. It's got uh, a stand dedicated to Arpad Weish, who's this extraordinary figure, the youngest ever manager to win Serie A, um, who was uh uh, Jewish and also ultimately uh, lost his life at Auschwitz. Lost his life is a is a wrong way to put that. Was murdered along with um, a horrendous number of people at Auschwitz. So has an incredible story. And and one of the stands at, of the Stadio Dallara is dedicated to him. So some fascinating history as well um, with that stadium. It's it's a wonderful place to watch a football game and, and lots else going on around it. That's always my number one vote. Obviously, go to San Siro, but that's obvious. So. Patrick, is there somewhere else you'd like to? Yeah, Marassi. I, I love the Stadio Luigi Ferraris. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that stadium. I always, I always enjoy it when I go there. They call it the most English stadium in Italy. That's because, you know, Nikki was talking about the fact that you're not too far away at the Dallara from mm. the pitch. That's very true at Marassi. There's no running track and it's just uh, 
and they're not even in Italy. We have curve, you know, so curved stands behind the goals. These are gradinata. They're actually mm. much more like English stands as well. So don't ever say to a Genoa or a Sampdoria fan, "Oh, do you stand in the curve?" No, no, I stand in the gradinata, gradinata north, gradinata sud, depending on whether it's a Genoa or or Sampdoria, respectively. And uh, so I'm a big fan of that. And Genoa is, is a wonderful city as well. It's got a, a microclimate all years all year round. It's it's on the Costa Azzurra, which is Italy's extension of the France's world famous Cote d'Azur. There's great food, you know, focaccia, the best focaccia. pesto. Focaccia is different in Genova. Get get the focaccia there. Um, and it's a it's a lovely place to be. Um, so there's that. I would definitely say that. And obviously, mm. the best thing about Marassi is your whatever weekend you go in the ten month season, you're guaranteed of, of getting to a game, which is great. A bit like when you come to Milan, you always know there's going to be a game on at San Siro because the the two teams from the, from the city uh, share the same stadium. Mm. The other ground, which is very close to my heart, is the uh, is the Via del Mare because I used to live down in uh, mm. in Brindisi, and I'm a huge fan of uh, of Lecce, the Florence of the South, as it's known for its uh, yeah, <laughs> baroque architecture. There's Piazza Santo Ronzo, which is the great central square, and the food there is is wonderful as well. You've got the puccia, which is a sort of a flatbread that they they fill with all sorts of things. But there's loads of stuff, and and um, yeah, I, I really I really I really like Lecce as well. The the home support is very vocal. They travel in great numbers, but um, there's a real hardcore of support in uh, in Lecce. It's it's a weird one because Puglia, like Calabria and Sicily, some of the southern regions, they are they have big support for the big three, Juventus in particular. But there's a lot of um, there's a lot of Lecce fans who deliberately. Uh, go even more the other way in their support of Lecce to um, to actually counteract um, what they call. I'm trying to think of the, of the uh, the term. They've actually got a specific term for people who support Lecce almost as their second team. But when like Juventus come to town, they go to the Via del Mare and cheer on the Bianconeri. So those would be my two. They're both coastal cities. Lecce's slightly inland, but it's a stone's throw from the Adriatic and the Ionian Sea. So depending if you go in the summer, obviously you won't get to football. But if you go in the late spring, you have this wonderful thing where you can ask the locals, which beach should I go to? And depending on what the wind is doing, they will tell you which beach to go to. So if it's the Shiroka coming from North Africa, then you need to go to this beach. And if not, if it's the Levante coming from the east, and it's amazing. Amazing place to be. And they also, one final thing on the culinary side, they um, <laughs> they have uh, coffee with uh, latte di mandorla, with, uh, with almond milk as well, which is uh, very nice of a morning. This and is, a pasty chocolate as well. <laughs> but, but, but but seriously, it's funny because we're all joking about it. But I mean, honestly, if you're going to go watch football in Italy, then you're not, if you're not going there to enjoy the culinary part of it as well, then why are you going? Honestly, I mean, the football's great, but enjoy all of it. Make sure you Definitely. get the full experience. Um, so great shouts from Patrick there. Um, we had more questions. I'd, I'd love to get to more, but I think we've already run out of time, unfortunately. Um, so I'm, I'm really sorry we didn't get to more questions, guys. We will make sure we get to um, another Q&A episode before too long. Do keep them coming in. Really fun to, to get your questions and, and pick up with those. I'm um, going to finish with one comment, not a question from Nick Newson on the Patreon app, who uh, just said he wanted to say how much I enjoyed the History of the Dead of Italia special episode, stories, history, and the nostalgia were wonderful. It really brought things to life. Would love additional episodes like this to bring some colour for a fan that can't watch more than the match a week. Noted, Nick. Thank you very much for saying that, and we will try to We have a sure Milan we... derby coming up in the coming weeks, so maybe we could yeah. uh, revisit it then. Yeah. I think that's, that's a really nice idea, and yeah, we'll try to make sure we, we get a 
we're trying to find the right blend to make sure we give you the current stuff, the nostalgia, all of it. So um, really lovely to hear people enjoyed that as well. Um, this episode will be uh, 100% free on the main podcast feed. I described it as a Patreon special at the beginning, so I'm sorry I just read that in the running order. Um, <laughs> remember to subscribe though uh, for Chronicles Diversity Patreon membership to get all of the content we put out. Um, there's a seven-day free trial available and more episodes and videos like this, uh, all content in full on the Patreon and ad-free as well. Uh, thank you very much, Patrick. And uh, we will see everyone next week. Celia Crocos is a Bea Crocos production. Sports Social Podcast Network.